0: Greetings, and welcome to Blue Stocking, the podcast for people who love to learn but don't always have time to study. I'm your host, Rory Roberts, and today we'll be diving into one of my favorite genres, the memoir. Now, since I'm a huge fan of both memoirs and the podcast My Favorite Murder, and since this is certainly not the last time I'll be diving into a memoir, this episode is titled My Favorite Memoirs, Chapter One. Yes, yes. Very clever. Uh, Today, I'll be talking about two fabulous ladies, Samantha Irby and Ginny Lawson. Their websites are in the show notes if you decide to check them out, and I hope you will, because they each have a singular way of saying things that I find very touching and hilarious all at once. Just a heads up, this episode does contain strong language, so if that's an issue for you, I do apologize, but you'll probably want to skip this one. Let's start with some material from Samantha Irby. I came across her work a few months ago when a friend from high school, in her words, ninja added me to a Facebook group inspired by Irby's blog. She apologized, but as I looked through everyone's post, I just wanted to thank her for introducing me to such an awesome little community. Hillary, if you are listening, seriously, thank you. This excerpt comes from her new book, We Are Never Meeting in Real Life. I love that title. All right. Fuck it, bitch. Stay fat. I mean, isn't this what we really want to do anyway? Because we already know how one loses weight, eat less, and exercise more. Or get surgery. Why are we still playing around with the Oreo diet or the whole milk and unpasteurized cheese diet or the diet where you still get to eat a pound of pasta? Either you're ready to eat vegetables and get on a treadmill or you are not. And I'm ready. I just lost five pounds and here's how. For two weeks, I quit drinking booze and soda, and I stopped eating dessert. I did an exercise. Someone please tell me how you fit heart rate raising exercise into a schedule that includes working a real job and trying to get a good night's sleep. But I tried to set reasonable goals like don't order one meat on top of another meat at lunch. Dieting is crazy and turns most of us into jerk most of us jerks into insufferable babies. Either one, you're a crabby asshole on the verge of tears all day long because you're desperate for a handful of Cheetos, or, two, you're perched atop a high horse made of fewer than twelve hundred daily calories, glaring down your nose at me and pointing out how much saturated fat is in my unsweetened iced tea. Man, don't you hate a fat skinny bitch more than anything else on the planet? You know who I mean. Your friend who used to eat mayonnaise straight from the jar, but who recently lost 20 pounds doing Whole30 because she was going through a midlife crisis and is now suddenly an expert on health and nutrition, totally qualified to rip the corndog out of your greasy little clutches. Holy shit, shut up, girl. Can't we all just decide that if you're over the age of 28, you don't have to worry about being skinny anymore? Then is a young woman's game, and I'm perfectly happy to chill on the bench this quarter with a chili dog. And if I happen to burn a few calories while texting, then great. Now let's not be crazy. Should you work out? Of course you should. But you don't need some magazine intern clucking at you from behind the computer screen about taking a jog around the block every once in a while. It doesn't even have to be hard. Just go to Curves a few times a week and trade a couple meals a day for some special K or a salad, but not the meat and cheese kind. And drink water to make your belly feel full and distract you from how much you would die for a Dove Bar. Also, running to the bathroom all the time has to qualify as minimal cardiovascular exercise. The hard part isn't the knowing what to do. It's the doing. I just had a yogurt. It had 150 calories in it and 2 grams of fat. I wrote it down in a little notebook full of lies that I keep in my backpack to motivate myself to try to eat better. In theory, that notebook is supposed to hold me accountable for all my food choices so that I can get on a path to better eating. In reality, I willfully ignore its existence every time someone brings a pizza to the office or the nights my friends coax me out to the bar or the entire week I spent in LA pretending I didn't just vow to end my love affair with cheese. I know what I'm supposed to do. I just need someone to tell me how. Every single day until I die. Seriously, though. Every woman in America is probably an expert on health and exercise based solely upon her subscription to Self magazine. Do you really need another article about how important it is to eat a big breakfast full of healthy fats and whole grains to curb afternoon snacking? No, you don't. You need bitches to write about how comfortable maternity, maternity jeans are for women who aren't really pregnant. And sexy ways to remove a bra that has four hooks. I'm always amused when they encourage you to eat instead foods, like eating an apple when you really want to rub a bacon cheeseburger all over your boobs is a fair substitute. Why not instead list which ice creams have the least calories by the pint? Oh, sure, you can tell a woman to just to run five miles and take up crafting after she gets dumped by some asshole and her friends won't call her back because they're tired of listening to her dissect every single aspect of their relationship. Do you think we'd still be together if I hadn't hated on that Flight of the Concord show in 2009? But she'd much prefer knowing whether an entire pint of Talenti has fewer calories than one of Haagen-Dazs. That's an instead a girl could really go for. (laughs) One of the things that I love about Irby's work is that I feel like it speaks to a lot of us. Same thing goes for Lawson, but more on that later i've been struggling with my weight for years and i found myself thinking a lot of the things she voices here many times incidentally and i'm not being paid to say this although wouldn't it be nice if i were i recently found a low calorie high protein ice cream that actually tastes pretty good it's called halo top and their mint chip flavor reminds me of frozen junior mints the whole pint was 240 calories and no i did not eat the whole pint at once but tempted um The rest of her book goes into adventures at her job, dating, her health issues, the struggles she faced with her parents, and it's incredibly personal and moving, but at the same time, her voice is so strong in her writing that it almost feels as if she's sitting right next to you as you read, like she's an old friend. She also has another collection of essays called Meaty, but I've heard that there will be an updated edition published in April and advised to wait until then. She recently made her way down to Austin for her book tour, and there's a hilarious post on her blog about how she'd always dreamed about moving here, but then she realized how hot it was. As I'm recording right now, my phone says it's 102 degrees outside, but I'm not willing to step out and test it. Instead, I'll switch over to Ginny Lawson. How to describe her... Her first book, Let's Pretend This Never Happened, has a picture of a taxidermy mouse wearing a cape and Elizabethan neck ruff on the cover, and if that sounds random, irreverent, and oddly charming, then there you have it. She too has a very special voice. I'm going to share a bit with you today from her second book, Furiously Happy, a funny book about horrible things, which also features a taxidermied critter on the cover, a raccoon, named, you guessed it, Rory. Uh, Here's what she has to say about him in her chapter titled, I have a sleep disorder and it's probably going to kill me or someone else. Last night, I realized that Rory was perfectly suited to ride on the cats, as if they were small furry horses and he was a rodeo star. But apparently the cats didn't realize how awesome it would be, and so they were incredibly uncooperative. I tried to create a photo montage of Rory the rodeo raccoon, but they weren't having it. I suspect if my cats had Instagram, they'd be all over this, but they don't, so they couldn't be bothered. I'd perch Rory on their backs, and they'd stand still for a second, but by the time i backed up and gotten them in focus, they'd turn around like, what are you doing? Why is there a raccoon on my back? Why do they even let you be in charge of things? And then they'd just flop over on their sides like a bunch of ingrates who didn't understand art. Rory would gently tumble onto the floor, which I suspect sent the cats mixed messages because he was still waving his hands in the air like he just didn't care, as if he were celebrating the cats being assholes. And I was like, you're killing me, Smalls. But then he just celebrated the fact that I was frustrated. Honestly, it is impossible to stay mad at that raccoon. Sometime around 2 a.m., Ferris Mueller finally gave up and stayed upright, Annoyed, but resigned as he carried an ecstatic Rory on his back. And I was like, yes, Ferris Mueller, you are America's next top model. But then Victor opened the bedroom door and yelled, what in the hell is going on out here? It's two o'clock in the damn morning. And Ferris panicked at all the unexpected yelling and tore off down the hall. But Rory was still stuck to his back as Ferris streaked through the living room. And then Victor was like, holy shit, what in the hell was that? because I guess his eyes hadn't adjusted to the light or maybe to the sight of an ecstatic raccoon frolicking bareback on a house cat. I considered acting just as shocked as he was and claiming it was probably a small chupacabra that had snuck in, but then I thought that would just raise more questions, so instead I lowered the camera and said, what was what? As innocently as possible. I prayed he'd just go away questioning his sanity, and he did, but probably less because I'd fooled him and more because he'd married someone who took secret pictures of cats wearing dead raccoons in the wee hours of the morning. It wasn't my fault, though. I've had chronic insomnia for as long as I can remember. These are the things that eventually happen when you're alone at 2am often enough. If you enjoyed that, there's plenty more of Rory and the cats in that chapter— I actually had tears streaming down my face the first time I read that bit because I was laughing so hard. But as the title suggests, suggests this is a book about horrible things, and I would be remiss if I didn't share with you my primary reason for picking it. According to the World Health Organization, one in four people in the world will be affected by mental or neurological disorders at some point in their lives. Around 450 million people currently suffer from such conditions, placing mental disorders among the leading causes of ill health and disability worldwide. Treatments are available, but nearly two-thirds of people with a known mental disorder never seek help from a health professional. Stigma, discrimination, and neglect prevent care and treatment from reaching people with mental disorders. Where there is neglect, there is little or no understanding. Where there is no understanding there is neglect. I share this because chances are you or someone you care about will experience some kind of mental illness in your lifetime. Jenny Lawson does an amazing job of explaining depression in a way that is accessible and helpful, both to people who have experienced it themselves and the people who love them. This description of depression and all that goes with it is from a mock interview she did with her husband, Victor. Depression is like... It's like when you meticulously scroll up through hundreds of pages in a Word document to find a specific paragraph you need to fix, and then you try to type, but it automatically takes you right back down to the bottom because you forgot to place your cursor where you wanted to type. And then you bang your head against the desk because you just totally lost your place, and then your boss walks in while you have your head planted on your desk, and you see her shoes behind you, so you immediately say, I'm not sleeping. I was just banging my head against the desk because I fucked something up. Wait, no, that's not it. Depression is like when you don't have any scissors to cut that thick plastic safety tie off of the new scissors that you bought that you just bought because you couldn't find your scissors. And then you just say, fuck it, and try everything else in the world to get the scissors to open. But all you have are plastic butter knives, and they aren't doing anything. So you stand in the kitchen holding scissors that you can't use because you can't find scissors, and then you get frustrated and throw the scissors in the garbage disposal and sleep on the couch for a week. And that's what depression is like. No, hang on. Depression is like when you don't want cheese anymore. Even though it's cheese. Okay, let me rephrase. Sometimes being crazy is a demon, and sometimes the demon is me. And I visit quiet sidewalks and loud parties and dark movies, and a small demon looks out at the world with me. Sometimes it sleeps. Sometimes it plays. Sometimes it laughs with me. Sometimes it tries to kill me. But it's always with me. I suppose we're all possessed in some way, some of us with dependence on pills or wine, others through sex or gambling, some of us through self-destruction or anger or fear, and some of us just carry around our tiny demon as he wreaks havoc in our mind, tearing open old dusty trunks of bad memories and leaving the remnants spread everywhere, wearing the skins of people we've hurt, wearing the skins of people we've loved, and sometimes, when it's worst, wearing our skins. These times are the hardest. When you can see yourself confined to your bed because you have no strength or will to leave. When you find yourself yelling at someone you love because they want to help but can't. When you wake up in a gutter after trying to drink or smoke or dance away the ache or the lack thereof. Those times when you are more demon than you are you. I don't always believe in God, but I believe in demons. My psychiatrist always says, but if you believe there are demons, then it follows that there could be a god. It's like believing in dwarves, but not in cyclopses. I consider pointing out that I've met several dwarves in my life and almost no cyclops, but I get what she's saying. There can't be dark without light. There can't be a devil without the god who created him. There can't be good without bad. And there can't be me without my demon. I think I'm okay with that. Or maybe it's my demon that is. It's hard to tell. My psychiatrist told me that when things get rough, I should consider my battle with mental illness as if I were exercising a demon. And I was like, well, no wonder I'm failing so miserably. I'm shit at exercising. Then she called me out for deflecting with humor and explained, you are exercising a demon. It's not something you can do alone. Some people do it with a priest in holy water. Some do it with faith. Some do it with chemicals and therapy. No matter what, it's hard and usually people end up with vomit on them, I replied. I'm seeing more of a connection. I wonder if I'm the priest in this scenario. I hope not, because he almost always dies just when he thinks everything is fine. This analogy is starting to creep me out. Every mental illness is different because every person is different. There aren't any easy cures, but there are so many tools available now that people are finally starting to talk about it. You have to figure out how to survive depression, which is really not easy because when you're depressed, you're more exhausted than you've ever been in your life, and your brain is lying to you, and you feel unworthy of the time and energy, which you don't often even have, needed to get help. That's why you have to rely on friends and family and strangers to help you when you can't help yourself. Lots of people think that they're a failure if they're first or second or eighth cure for depression or anxiety doesn't work the way they wanted. But an illness is an illness. It's not your fault if the medication or therapy you're given to treat your mental illness doesn't work perfectly, or it worked for a while but then stopped working. You aren't a math problem. You're a person. What works for you won't always work for me and vice versa, but I do believe that there's a treatment out there for everyone if you give yourself the time and patience to find it. Additionally, psychiatrists are always changing shit, so even they don't know what's going on. A mental disorder might be reclassified into a phobia. A phobia might be reclassified as a disorder. In fact, I asked my shrink to read this book and fix everything that's now outdated, but it'll just be outdated again next week when the big book of crazy is updated again. She agreed that it's hard to keep up with it all, but pointed out that it's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. In my defense, I'm bored with that name, and I think they'd sell more copies if they used my title. Or maybe Game of Thrones Part 14. Here's what I find helpful. Sunlight, antidepressants and anti-anxiety drugs, vitamin B shots, walking, letting myself be depressed when I need to be, drinking water, watching Doctor Who, reading, telling my husband when I need someone to watch me, making a mixtape of songs that make me feel better, and not allowing myself to listen to the stuff I want to listen to, but that I know will make me worse. I talk to people on Twitter when I'm afraid to be out in the world. When I can't be an active mom, I snuggle with my daughter and watch TV with her or ask her to read to me. I replace the moments when I feel I should be at a PTA meeting with a memory I hope she'll treasure of us hiding under a blanket fort with the cats. I remind myself that depression lies and that I can't trust my own critical judgment when I'm sick. And if things get really bad, I call the suicide hotline. I'm not suicidal, but I've called several times before to be talked down from hurting myself. They help. They listen. They've been there. They give advice. They tell you that you aren't crazy. Or sometimes they tell you that you are crazy, but in a good way. A way that makes you special. Everyone is different, so the best thing you can do is to ask the person you're dealing with what they need. Like, some people prescribe God for depression or self-harm, and I think that can be really helpful for people who aren't me. Some claim that depression can be prayed away or is caused when you don't have enough God in your life. I tried God once, but it didn't work well, so I cut the dose by a third and just had go. Go where? I asked. No one answered. Probably because I didn't have enough God in my life. Someone else told me that capitulating to my depression made me seem ungrateful because Jesus died so that I wouldn't have to suffer. But frankly, Jesus seemed to have, a, have have more than his fair share of bullshit in his life, too. That guy got nailed to death. I bet people walking past Jesus were like, wow, that guy should have had more God in his life. Or maybe they just sent him those emails that say, let go and let God, or God listens to an email. Probably not, though, because email wasn't popular yet. But I think that's for the best because there is nothing more annoying than having someone tell you that everything would be fine if you were just a better prayer, or if you just smiled more, or stopped drinking Diet Coke. I can tell you that just cheer up is almost universally looked at as the most unhelpful depression cure ever. It's pretty much the equivalent of telling someone who just had their legs amputated to just walk it off. Some people don't understand that for a lot of us, mental illness is a severe chemical imbalance rather than just having a case of the Mondays. Those same well-meaning people will tell me that I'm keeping myself from recovering because I really just need to cheer up and smile. That's when I consider chopping off their arms and then blaming them for not picking up their severed arms so they can take them to the hospital to get reattached. Just pick them up and take them to get fixed. It's not that hard, Sarah. I pick up stuff all the time. We all do. No, I'm not going to help you because you have to learn to do this for yourself. I won't always be around to help you, you know. I'm sure you could do it if you just tried. Honestly, it's like you don't even want to have arms. Granted, it's not a perfect analogy because you don't usually lose your arms due to involuntary chemical imbalances. Except that if I cut off your arms because of my mental illness, then technically a chemical imbalance did lead to your arms falling off, so it's dangerous for everyone. I guess my point here is that we all suffer when in, when mental illness is not taken seriously. I think it bears repeating. We all suffer when mental illness is not taken seriously. If you or someone you know suffers from mental illness, there are resources available, I will be putting links to more information in the show notes, including the two-part series on depression by Hyperbole and a Half author and artist, Allie Brosh. The following is an article from the Globe and Mail by Zosia Bielski, published in October 2013 and updated in April 2014. Allie Brosh compares her 19-month-long bout with severe depression to the moment your childhood starts receding into the past, when you outgrow your toys most fun activities just left me existentially confused or frustrated with my inability to enjoy them months oozed by and i gradually came to accept that maybe enjoyment was not a thing i got to feel anymore she recalled brosh is the cartoonist and writer behind hyperbole and a half a webcomic that now attracts five million unique visitors a month for four years, the 28-year-old has combined her rudimentary paintbrush drawings with beyond-candid essays that draw from her childhood and from her current domestic life. But it was a 2011 post titled Adventures in Depression that rocketed brush to serious virality, landing her a book deal. That post was hailed by critics and psychologists as one of the most insightful depictions of the disease to date. It also galvanized thousands of fans suffering from the illness. They've described Brosh's piece as the most relatable portrayal they'd ever seen of their own experiences. Shortly after the depression post and subsequent book deal, Brosh vanished from her popular blog. Fans feared for her well-being until she reemerged in 2012 to take their questions on Reddit, only to disappear again until the following spring, when she published more searingly precise essays. Published this week, Brash's first book, Hyperbole and a Half, Unfortunate Situations, Flawed Coping Mechanisms, Mayhem, and Other Things That Happened, compiles fan favorites from the blog with new material. Brash brings levity to many train marks of depression, from emotional numbness to suicidal thoughts to paralysis around simple life tasks such as returning a DVD. Through her crude cartoons, Brash has become an unlikely poster girl for depression, a mantle she's happy to take on. Today, her Facebook pa- fan page counts nearly 400,000 likes, and her Twitter account boasts more than 100,000 followers. Unlike some diseases, depression doesn't have celebrity spokespeople lining up. Actress Katherine Zeta-Jones and Olympic cyclist and speed skater Clara Hughes are among a handful who stand up for the cause. As San HBC's Kevin Briel, 19, put put it in his notable TED Talk, Confessions of a Depressed Comic, this fall, we are so, so, so accepting of any body part breaking down other than our brains. That ignorance has created a world that doesn't understand depression, that doesn't understand mental health. Brosh, who studied human biology at the University of Montana, draws with a purposeful roughness using simple paint software for Mac. She often does more than ten drafts of her panels, spending hours on facial expressions or body positions. The protagonist in her stories is a wide-grinning, googly-eyed stick figure topped by a blonde ponytail, or shark fin, as Brosh calls it. She wears a pink dress under a filthy gray hoodie, her depression suit. Speaking ahead of an American book book tour from Bend, Oregon, where she lives with her husband and their two dogs and seven pet rats, Brosh said her connection to legions of other depression sufferers has turned out to be a mutually beneficial feedback loop. Depression is such an isolating experience, and there's a tendency to feel like you're the only one experiencing that depth or that exact brand of misery. And so it was surprising to hear how much it resonated with people, she said. Just as importantly, people who have never experienced the condition write to her and say, Oh, wow, I understand it now. Some experts, including Jonathan Rottenberg, associate professor of psychology at the University of South Florida, have lauded Hyperbole and a Half as one of the best contemporary portraits of the condition. I know of no better depiction of the guts of what it's like to be severely depressed, Clutching your blanket, you are born into the baffling, boring, disorienting state that is depression, radically out of phase with the rest of humanity, unable to understand the concerns of other people, nor able to communicate yours to them, he wrote of Brosh in Psychology Today. It makes plain to people who haven't had depression what it's like, Rottenberg says in an interview. The author of the forthcoming book The Depths, The Evolutionary Origins of Depression Epidemic adds— It spans an incredibly wide set of important issues. What it's like to be depressed, to interact with a depressed person, how a depressed person starts to rejoin humanity and make contact with the life that they had before. Ross Johnson, a Pawtucket, Rhode Island-based clinical social worker and author of the comic novel Minding Therapy, says brush taps into feelings many sufferers have trouble relaying. What she accesses and presents to other people is so clear and well-articulated, which is why it resonates, Johnson says. And first off, she's willing to do it, to put it out there. Brosh says the worst part of her depression was catastrophizing it all. The question, how long is this going to happen to me, rolling constantly through her brain. She paints an exacting picture of the family and friends of depressed people who, though well-meaning, will often become impatient with a patient's progress and offer patronizing recommendations like yoga and volunteering or a better diet. Brosh calls this the hope-centric approach. Her advice? Don't push people to feel better before they're able to. It's a traumatic experience for someone who loves you to see this happening to you. They want reassurance that everything's going to be okay. but you might not be able to tell them that with any authority, she said. The thing that most that is most helpful is being willing to sit with the depressed person, not treating them as someone who's sick or suffering, just being willing to interact and be there and not make everything about the depression. Today, Brush is feeling better, but says she is operating at about 40% capacity. Her two canines, Simple Dog and Helper Dog, have acted as a soothing balm, They get much airtime, both in the book and the blog. During the worst of her depression, Brosh and her husband would walk their dogs for hours late at night, out of sight of other bubbly dog people. "'Dogs don't expect anything of you, and they don't judge you,' said Brosh. "'They might know that you're depressed and that something's not right, but there's no pressure to feel better when you can't feel better. It is relieving to be around another creature that isn't pushing you in any direction.'" Other coping mechanisms like swimming and running have helped take the edge off, even though Brosh admits it is monumentally difficult to do those things, so it is not an easy solution. She is open about crediting part of her recovered, recovery to Wellbutrin, an antidepressant and smoking cessation aid that also helps her cope with her ADHD. I take things as they come more easily, she says, adding, I'm okay with how okay I am. Uh, I will, again, as I said earlier, place links in the show notes to uh, her blog, Hyperbole and a Half, specifically her two two pieces on depression, which are incredibly good and I highly recommend reading. Her book is also amazing um, and really, really funny, just as Lawson's and Irby's are. I certainly hope you have enjoyed and learned something this week and uh, as always if you have questions or suggestions uh, please feel free to email me at bluestockingpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.